Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And welcome to a brand new episode of I Was There Too, the show where I, Matt Gorley, talk to people present in the great scenes of cinema history. But today, not just present, but also past and future. Tom Wilson, a.k.a. Biff Tannen, among other members of the Tannen clan, joins me to talk about the Back to the Future trilogy. He has a storied and complicated past with this role, primarily because of how brilliantly he played it, but... For years, that's all people would see in him, so much so that he took pains to create a little handout card that he would pass out to people when they approached him about playing Biff. They cover a lot of the basic questions that he was regularly asked. I'll read a little bit of it right now, because we talk about it in the interview, and I wanted to challenge myself to not ask any of these common questions to make it interesting for him as well as for you, whom I serve as a public podcasting servant. It goes like this. I'm Tom Wilson. I was in all three Back to the Future movies. Michael J. Fox is nice. I'm not in close contact with him. Christopher Lloyd is nice. He is a very shy man. Crispin Glover is unusual, but not as unusual as he sometimes presents himself. We got along nicely. Leah Thompson is nice. Eric Stoltz originally played Marty, but was fired due to performance issues. And it goes on and on and on to answer some of the questions that you might think to ask, or probably ones that many of you already know the answers to. If you go to this episode's webpage, you'll see a picture of that card and you can read it for yourself. You'll also see the YouTube video of the question song that Tom talks about in this interview. It was very exciting to talk to Tom about this because this film, a lot of it was actually shot around where I grew up. The high school is Whittier High School. The mall is the Pointe Hills Mall where I used to go see movies. I don't think I saw this movie there. I think I saw that at the Fashion Square Cinemas. You know what? I don't need to go into that. That's not what podcast intros are for. And before we get started, I would like to announce that there will be a live episode of I Was There Too this month. If you're in L.A., February 28th at 8 p.m., at the Regent in Los Angeles, I will be talking to legendary screenwriter Stephen D'Souza, who wrote some small pictures you might have heard of, little independent movies like Die Hard, 
48 Hours, Commando, and a movie that will be screened that night, along with the Q&A, The Running Man. Emphasis intended in deference to Richard Dawson. This will be a blast. It's presented by the wonderful Alamo Draft House, and tickets can be purchased at TicketFly.com. Okay, enough business. Let's get started. Enjoy. The films, Back to the Futures, 1, 2, and 3. The years, 1985, 89, and 90. The roles, Biff Tannen, Griff and Buford Mad Dog Tannen. The actor, Thomas Wilson. Tom Wilson, you've transformed your own career into kind of a postmodern pop art in a way that I don't think anyone has. I was trying to think about it, that you sort of took control of your fame and even the things you couldn't control, like people asking you endless questions about your role as Biff, and you turned it into this wonderful series of self-referential paintings. Was that a gradual realization of a way to approach your work or something that kind of just hit you one day? Um, that's a very complicated answer, actually. Is I it? mean, it's a good question. But at one point, many years ago, being that bad guy in all of the Back to the Future movies, um, I had to figure out plan B for dealing with all of the celebrity and the attention and some of the flack that comes with that. Um, because I've worked with many, many people in my career who have had that kind of celebrity and it began happening to me. And I must say, I hadn't seen in my life anyone that I know, I think, deal with it in a healthy way. You know, I'm not that logical a person. I'm really sort of an <laughs> artist guy. Uh-huh. But in this, I saw that it was becoming a problem, a problem to me because you're going into auditions and the, the, the producers of this TV show, they just want to ask me questions about Back to the Future. I mean, they're thrilled that that back to the future guy is in the room, but I'm having a hard time having them actually pay attention to the thing I've prepared to audition for them, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. Uh, so, so I did look around uh, and think, oh, well, that guy, that happened to that guy. How did he deal with it? Ooh, not well. Hey, it happened to that friend of mine. Remember that when that happened to him? Ooh, yeah, that didn't, that went pretty badly, in fact. Um, and it, it goes into, um, to me, it seemed, uh, damaged relationships, um, a, a, a separation of the actual person from what the public thinks they are, you know, yeah. that, that, that thing, the Aristotle who said the mask an actor wears is apt to become his face. Yeah. Uh, Those kinds of questions. So I really, years and years ago, I thought, what would be an interesting way to approach this? And I'm going to approach it as an artist. I'm going to step out of it and try, try in my own small way to make various works of art about being a pop cultural icon. You know, preparing for this interview, I'm watching these films, but I'm also looking at this artwork of yours. And the whole time I'm thinking, there's so much information already out there about these films, documentaries, websites. I found myself just wanting to talk about your journey through this thing because, you know, you famously and understandably so have had 
cards, right, that you would hand out to people with common answer or I questions, did. answers to the common questions of yes. Back to the Future. The, the first thing that I did was write a song. Right. Uh, uh, called Biff's Question Song, <laughs> where I thought, well, I always have these conversations. And really, when I'm meeting people now, they're actually not, to them, they're not meeting a person. They're meeting a pop icon that they have a series of questions for. Right. Um, so I thought, well, what would be an interesting way to approach that? Hey, I won't. I, I won't do it angrily. I won't do it. I'll just write a song about it. That's kind of funny. And I, I did this show. I, I did the song on stage and I expected it. I actually expected it to not do particularly well as comedy, but be one of those thinking uh-huh. kind of pieces that, that I would make in, 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 in my stand-up show. And it actually got a huge response. It actually, by the middle of the song, people got it. They got what I was saying. Like, okay, we all realize I'm that guy. And it was, um, it was the fir- sort of the first salvo, in a way, of, of my interesting relationship with this whole thing. And it got picked up around the world and everything. And people, uh, people had to come up then and say, hey, you th- I love the song. I saw it on YouTube. But, and then they would have another question. <laughs> You know. One that wasn't covered. By exactly. A it. question that wasn't covered by the song. You need a, you need uh, a follow-up yeah. song. You need but, a whole album. Right. But on stage, the, the song was great because on stage I could do the song. And then in a way, it um, it unplugged all those guys who wanted to heckle me. Hey, butthead. Hey, do Back to the Future stuff, whatever. And the audience, fortunately, had a feeling like that room that I was performing in had this vibe. Hey, man, he dealt with that. Like he yeah. gave us funny stuff and he answered some questions and it was funny and he, he approached it in a kind of a different way. So, hey, man, ease up. Let's see, let's see what he actually has to do. But I found it really wasn't enough. People would have more questions after that. And, um, and that's the thing. And um, as the Back to the Future movies were sort of being – the experience of them was wonderful for everyone and everyone loves them. But it was also being formed into sort of an amber. You know, you're getting trapped like a bug (laughs) in the Paleozoic era, you know, (laughs) and you feel the amber hardening around you into into that pop cultural iconography so that even more, I wasn't having normal conversations with people. So you can imagine my challenge as we sit here today, trying to being very aware of a the questions that you've laid out in this handout, and trying to think of a way to approach this in a way that is both new and interesting for you, but also informative to the listener. I, I think the the movies are very interesting. The rise of the movies within popular culture is interesting, um, but I, I'm just a guy. Who, who came here, and I, I think I, I did my best to do a great job uh-huh. at it. So I'm very proud of it in that respect. But other than that, I have to comment on it, like everyone comments on it, I have to comment on it from my position in it, uh, which is, you know, the, the thing that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and still grows now in 2017. 
So uh, the question song was something. That was the first one where I said, look, I get this a lot. Thank you for your interest, and we'll joke about it a little bit. And that, it was great. And uh, like I said, uh, it was in newspapers and all, all over, all around the world. And then I found I really, in, in personal conversation, I needed a postcard that on the back of the postcard, in tiny print, just answered every other question, answered all of these questions. Because people... People did not want to talk to me or ask me how my day was going. Really, they would be asking me how my day was going with these empty eyes where you can see like, I'm just waiting for the time that I can ask him if the DeLorean is actually, you know, whatever, a great car, whatever it is. So I made uh, the postcard filled with answers that I would just hand to people and say, I I guess we're done here then because, I mean, that's why – this is why you came up to me to ask these questions. So here is a card. Thank you and have a good day. Well, for that reason alone, I want to thank you for being here today to talk about some of this stuff. I'm going to I'm gonna steer f- clear from a lot of the questions that I think that you normally get asked, but I may put you on the well, spot. Well, you can ask them because a lot of people have them. I mean, again, I'm not a bully guy who says, don't ask me this, don't ask me that. I don't want to talk about the movies. I understand that the movies are interesting and that people want to know about them. And I'm, and I'm cool with that. Again, I just have to sort of do it in a, in a funny way or yeah. try to put on a different – try to put it through a little artistic kaleidoscope. But I'm with you on that. I think I, that's what I love about this. And so those questions have been answered. In fact, I'll probably read that card in the intro to this thing. So all of that's taken care of. Yeah. I want to know, is there a question that or, – or something about these films that like really want to talk about that you never get asked or that you think is more important than what you normally get? Can, does anything come to mind? I know it's putting you on the spot. I think all of the performances, the performances of actors in the movie have so been, 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 um, been, been accepted into the American culture, into the, into, into the zeitgeist, that I think it's, it's been ignored how unbelievable uh, Crispin Glover is in that movie, how brilliant, brilliant Christopher Lloyd's performance is in that movie, you know? Yeah. How, I mean, I won't say brilliant or whatever, but it was a lot of really hard work that went into crafting something. And and the beautiful part is, like any beautifully crafted thing, you can't see the work that went into it. <laughs> it's just beautiful. But as one of the workers, you know, as one of the one of the guys who who laid a lot of bricks for the Empire State Building, you know, <laughs> you do want to stand outside the building and just say, like, you know, there's a lot of bricks in that thing. <laughs> you know, like, man, we uh, we were up really early, man, laying bricks in that thing. It was it was like a lot of of, of work. I had a lot of different type of bricks, right? Because I, from what I can tell in my research and knowing a little bit about these actors, when you have Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. Fox and even Eric Stoltz in the beginning and then Crispin Glover and yourself, I would imagine that's a different – a lot of different approaches to acting in general and how they're all meeting, sometimes literally in a 50s diner. How did that Absolutely they're meeting come in a 50s together? Yeah. diner. Like did you feel that all – that the different approaches to acting – 
benefited it or were there times when it was difficult to kind of get on the same page? Um, I think, I think it benefited it a great deal. Um, I mean, and this is not a, a personal attack at all, but clearly it didn't benefit it while Eric Stoltz was playing Marty McFly. Yeah, and that's widely written about, not right, in a disparaging way. Right, widely written way, about, but, not in a disparaging yeah. way, but just saying when, when a person is coming in, I, I think, with, with an approach, with, uh, with the way – the way that getting all fancy about it, but it's sort of the way you tune your instrument, you know, yeah. how you walk in and approach this scene that we're going to do, if it's very distracting and if it actually doesn't end up, you know, on the film, then something's got to give uh-huh. or it's, it's just not going to be effective. It's, it's not going to work. And I, I think that's what was happening is that everyone, um, th- as you said, everyone through their different approaches was coming together and the scene really worked. All of that energy, even competing energies, it actually uh, it actually enlivened the scene. Well, it sort of maybe suits the characters too, even if you have someone like Crispin Glover who's coming a little bit more out of left field. Right. At odds with your character, Biff. Right. Does that... Does that play into it a little it bit? It plays into yeah. a lot. Yeah. It plays into <laughs> a lot. Crispin's a great <clears throat> discomfort. I mean, the, the brilliance <laughs> of that. I've never heard the description of him. is an amazing description. A great discomfort. Yeah. It's, yeah. yes, a, a person uh, on screen who is just deeply uncomfortable in his own skin. <laughs> And, and and longing for something, that longing. I mean, Crispin's performance, in my opinion, is the heart of the whole movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, and Christopher Lloyd's performance is, is kind of the brains of the whole movie as sort of secondary characters, but they're really big fulcrum points of the energy of what's happening. And, and, uh, and Crispin's... <clears throat> Crispin's the longing of that character. Uh, uh, so, I mean, there's so many, so many, incre- to me, incredibly brilliant touches in that movie. When um, in, the, in the cafe, there, um, one of Biff's gang members says about Marty McFly, like, look, uh, about his down vest. Yeah, look at this, whatever. This dork is going to drown. <laughs> look at him. And Crispin, as, as uh, George McFly, sort of takes that opportunity to maybe laugh at Marty McFly a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, and you get that like immediate that, feeling like, I can be a tiny bit of a bully. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to be part of this or something that I'm not part of. Yeah, and if it gets the attention off of me, that Biff is giving me attention, I'm going to take a shot at this. Yeah. I go like, well, yeah, look, look, at, look at him. You know, just that, that is brilliant. And a person who's completely engaged in what's happening in a character's life moment by moment and not just being the scared guy in the cafe. This, on that note, there's something that you do in your first scene that feels very much along those lines that I wanted to ask you about. So the, the, the scene in current 1985 when the movie opens and you're pushing around older George McFly and Marty comes home. 
and you, you're bullying George McFly, but when Marty comes home, you have a sort of almost deference to him or something that feels subtle and you don't know because you haven't seen the movie yet, but you don't push back at him and you, you almost pause like a, like a cat when they see another predator or something. What's, what's going on there? Do you remember? Yeah, I just don't – I don't know what to make of him. <laughs> I don't know where his weakness is in order to bully him. I don't like he is uh, young and strong and and uh, he he is very uh, very sort of self aware and he treats me with a sort with a quiet disdain. Um, so I don't know what to make of him yet. It's a worth rewatching if you're listening to this to going back and watching that first scene to see that there is it feels like two animals sort of sizing each other up and not understanding how the other walks in their life and it's right. really fascinating. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad uh, that y- you noticed that. Yeah. Now, Crispin Glover, he's missed in the second movie and what was the feeling when he didn't come back and for the reasons for which he says he didn't come back? Did you guys feel like this was a piece missing or he uh, he was incredibly missed and i certainly feel his absence in both the second and the third movie yeah. because as i said i think he's the heart of the first movie and i think his his story is really the movie in a sense that but his son the star of the movie is helping his dad <laughs> to get the guts to stand on his two feet and live out his future, you know? So th- that's really the story, is a guy who's been beaten down, who is, who is quiet, who doesn't talk to girls, and his son gets in a time machine to go back <laughs> and change his life. And his life is changed at the end. And, and he, you know, he has it together. Um, so, yeah, I, I really think it was a great, great loss. And there are many, many stories of how it, how he wasn't in the movie and how all that stuff happened. But, you know, Crispin's approach is, uh, uh, is um, unusual. Um, it's sometimes difficult to understand. But honestly... Honestly, and this, I guess this is the first time I'll publicly say this, but I'm cool. I don't care what people think. Um, I was in high school and before, like, I, I, was, I was sick a lot when I was in school. And I was absent for like a couple of years of the four years of high school. And I had some unusual friends, you know, unusual friends. And that's how I got involved in, in acting and in theater. It attracts some people that are that are on the outskirts, that are experimenting with ways to live their lives, ways to get attention. They have a skill set of some kind, but they're not really sure how to use it perfectly. So they begin acting out or being unusual or whatever, you know, or wearing a trench coat or dyeing their hair black or whatever they do. Um, um, my heart always went out to them, and honestly, I always got along with them pretty well because I tried to deal with them like people, but taking them as themselves and trying to 
and, and trying to have a relationship in that way. Uh, and I think that Crispin, certainly in his young life, and even then, was a person in a way trying to do that. And when you're a person trying to do that, and in my own ways, I've been a person trying to do that. And I think that uh, Hollywood, in a big movie, backed by big businessmen, spending a lot of money, um, I just don't think that they're, they're patient with that at all. <laughs> you know, can see they that. can't understand that. And they just uh, they they'll try to deal with it in a way, but what the first their first movements t- toward dealing with that, you can feel their eyeballs rolling in their head. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can feel their discomfort. Like, okay, let's let's do this. You know. Um, and I just think that uh, I won't say Crispin individual, but you know anyone anyone like that can be dealt with with a gentler hand and do do fabulously well. Hmm. And I just think from the very beginning, it was just not meant to be. A couple of more understanding conversations would have gone a long way. I think that's the best way I've ever heard him described. I've always been fascinated by his career in the same sense of what you're talking about, not because he's, quote, weird or strange, but because he does things differently. And I always find that interesting in his performances. His father, too, who was a James Bond henchman. Bruce, yeah, yeah, Bruce Bruce Glover. I spoke to about being on this show and ultimately it didn't work out because I think he has a different way of working with things, too, and was reluctant in some ways. But I find those people to be incredibly fascinating. And I want to know how they came to the same place from a different direction. And the fact that you guys all did end up in a 50s diner making this science fiction hit movie, a generational milestone, but all came from different places like spokes on a wheel to arrive at that center place at that uh, period I think, of time. Yeah, I think that that's true. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, yeah, as I said, there are aspects of myself that are like that, but I could bury those things because I was in a movie and I was a young guy and I had been on, you know, the facts of life yeah, and yeah. I did a hot chocolate commercial <laughs> and I, you know, I introduced biscuits at Kentucky Fried Chicken on the national commercial. But, you know, I hadn't been in a big movie. So my thing was just shut up. Behave. Try to learn how to do this and just, you know, just just deliver solid performances Every day. As an actor, did you draw on any of those experiences you might have had? Because I also read that in The Hollywood Reporter, I believe, where you had mentioned having some issues with being bullied yourself. I was and then, bullied uh, relentlessly. And then playing a bully. When I was young, yeah. How did that factor in? Well, it uh, the first time we auditioned together, sometimes you'll go um, – we went to over to Universal Studios in order to audition for this movie, Back to the Future, the Steven Spielberg's producing, Robert Zemeckis is directing and everything. And you just get paired up with people. They'll just put you with Bob. Okay, you guys go out and rehearse this scene and then come back in and, and read it for us. And right off the bat, the first person that I was paired up with was Crispin. Uh. <laughs> so uh, this is, you know, this is the first time I'd ever uh, played a bully in anything. And we go outside with the scripts. Okay, let's let's do this. And, and I said, well, how would this sound? Okay, let's look at this. And I go, uh, hey, McFly, did you do the homework? Or whatever. And and Crispin, in a in a flash, changed into this 
you know, kind of querulous, uh, like a physical question mark, bending his back. Physically and, and figuratively. Fi- yes, yeah. figuratively. And, and just, oh, oh, Bev, I just, and um, it was it was like looking at myself oh. in the fifth grade or sixth grade. And I stopped. I couldn't continue to see. I like, I just stopped staring at him because it was like something he channeled me from many years ago. And he stopped then and is everything all right? Uh, yeah, 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 everything's fine. And then, and then we did it again where I said, hey, it's acting. It's acting. Just pretend this. He's, I'm a bully and he's, and he's the guy being bullied and that's, that's the way it is. Um, but yes, it was, uh, it was difficult for me to internalize any of that stuff. And honestly, honestly, I didn't, uh, you know, sometimes as an actor, it is important to really internalize a scene in order to make it authentic. Uh, but I didn't internalize much of that. That was actual flat out acting. Uh Because like in the scene with um, in the scene with Leah Thompson in the car, when you know I thought at one point I, the, the scene was written and we're in a car and something's going on and that's okay. But I thought at one point because I had seen bullies in my life and I'd stared them in the face and I didn't find them funny, you know I didn't find it the least bit funny or entertaining at all. They're mean. There is a seed of evil in them that enjoys doing that to people. And I thought that the movie had to have a moment like that. Not just, I get out, oh, what do you want me to fly? And he punches me. It has to have a turn. I know exactly what you're talking about. It has to have a turn. Your tone is low and even. Where the tone, right. Where the tone, he opens the car door and you think, this is a totally different thing. This is not a guy just pushing around his dad. You know, this is not, this isn't just the bully at the cafe. Mm-hmm. Something bad is happening. And so, you know, the hero of the movie, do you do something or do you not do anything? And that's, that, the movie, to me, is not even me getting punched. The movie is him saying, no, Biff, you leave her alone. That's the whole movie. Here's a question that I've never been able to articulate well, and you would be someone that's good to answer this. When you're playing someone like a bully or an authoritarian in a role, do you find that easier or more difficult? Because what I mean by that is if anybody has ever done any acting, you you arrive on set and you're already feeling unsure about yourself, your choices, because there's so much to think about just technically in there. You're surrounded by grips and people that are – sometimes at best indifferent because they're just doing their jobs. It's not like theater. You're not getting a reaction necessarily. So you have to find your own confidence and your own belief on how to deliver this character. So is it easier for you to play someone more, let's say, submissive because that may be how you're feeling at the moment? Or is it easier to just go all the way and play an authoritarian? And ironically, in my experience, I found it easier to be someone who comes in and takes command. I'm just curious what other actors feel about that kind of thing. Uh, I think so, too. I think so, too. I mean, as we talked about before, there are certainly subtleties in taking the room. Uh-huh. You can't be completely over the top with every moment. I mean, you have to 
you have to be still paying attention moment to moment to the various subtleties that are there in the character and in the scene. But for the most part, yes, it's probably easier and better to, when you walk into the room, command the room. I mean, the set. Yeah. You know, the set of the scene. Of the scene, yeah, not as an actor. But and as certainly a when, you're, when you're the bad guy, when you're the antagonist and not the protagonist, when you show up on screen, it's, you know, the wheels of the plot are turning. Right. Every wheel begins to turn. What is happening because he's ruining the life of our hero. He's ruining the story. He's going to wreck it. He's going to break the DeLorean. They're not going to get back to the future, you know, everything. So, yeah, I, I, I think that's true, especially in a movie like Back to the Future because, I mean, Biff is – it's a big character. Yeah. Uh, physically large, but, but it's also, I mean, just big in the story that when I show up, yes, I, I just push everyone around and try to wreck everything. We're going to move on to talk about some of your other work. There's a lot of other questions I have about some stuff you've done. In fact, even just reading about your life and the fact that you were on a debate team with David Brooks, the columnist. Yeah, David Brooks was my debate partner. And in your high roommate school. was Andrew Dice Clay, right? And I was roommates with Andrew Dice Clay. So put that in your in your skull. I well, but, I have a question about that, and this is a ridiculous question. But today, would you rather debate with David Brooks and live with Andrew Dice Clay, or vice versa, if you had to choose? Debating Andy's probably easier. Uh, David's, you know, he's really – he's smart and tricky. Yeah, he's a smart guy. <clears throat> he's a very he's smart guy. Fascinating He's a very guy. smart guy. Yeah. He's uh, – I had been reading his stuff. It's so fun. I mean this is now years ago. But he was writing for the Wall Street Journal yeah. and everything yeah. and these, these articles that I was really uh, admiring his work. Oh, David Brooks. I didn't put it together. That that was the guy from You're high kidding. school. No, I didn't put together that that was my that was my high school. Even debate with those partner. little stippled Wall Street Journal drawings, I had never seen. Faces. I never looked at one. And then and then uh, and then he showed up. One of his very early appearances. It was uh, the News Hour uh -huh. on PBS. Yeah. Uh, McNeil Lehrer News Hour at that point. And now we have uh, from the Wall Street Journal David Brooks. And it comes up. The screen comes up. And I'm like, David Brooks. <laughs> Oh, you mean that's David? I know David Brooks. What are you kidding me? Um, so it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And David actually reviewed the first Back to the Future movie for the Wall Street Journal because we were friends. So he just stepped in as film critic? He stepped in as film critic in order to review Back to the Future for the Wall Street <sighs> Journal. I find that. Saying, uh, you know, that this he was my debate partner in high school and uh, – <laughs> Yeah, and very, very few actors have been actually talked about on book notes on C-SPAN <laughs> by David Brooks, the op-ed columnist for the New York Times. Uh. But David and I, you know, my dad, uh, my dad was a lawyer, and I, I thought being from Philadelphia, doing something like show business was like, you might as well say you're moving to Mars. You know, I was doing plays in high school. I enjoyed all that stuff. I enjoyed visual arts. I enjoyed music. But, um, but... You know, it was one of those things. Well, well, we enjoy all those things, and then college comes, and then you become a regular person, and then we, you <laughs> yeah. know, we we we, we, we sew the similar. briefcase to your hand, <laughs> we drive you to the train, and we say, you go to the city where the buildings are, get out, walk around, read the newspaper on the way home, and that's that's how you live life. And I was, uh, as I said, I was, I was, I was just was not cut out for that. So I want to talk about some of your paintings too, and. There's a series that you 
I believe called Pop Fugue, right? Yeah, Pop yeah, Fugue. Where you kind of – you both use yourself as a figure like we talked about earlier in this. But also you have a – oh, hey, Siri just came up. Hey, what is your grandfather's name to Siri? I mean, <laughs> Did you don't say it in the microphone because they'll – yeah. Do you mean Guy or James? I don't really like talking about myself. Well, I hardly was talking about you. I was talking about my grandparents. Okay, bye, Siri. Sorry about that. That's okay. Maybe she has a Back to the Future question. Let's find out. Siri probably does. <laughs> hey, Siri, do you have a question about Back to the Future? I'd really rather answer something. Oh, do you oh, have a question for Siri, she, Tom? She, no, she's got an attitude. Oh, yeah. Hey, Siri, what's with the attitude? It says entering interesting question, but she didn't want to speak that one for some reason. Uh-huh. Sure. What a, what a cagey lady. Well... Siri, I'll thank you to leave us alone for a little while while we finish our interview. All right. You have a series where you um, paint kind of 50s and 60s, mid-century pop culture toys and that yeah. sort of thing. Here's too. how that whole thing began. It, it was uh, those paintings, the paintings of heroically lit objects from popular culture, in a sense, are each uh, a self-portrait because I am an object of pop culture, a, a product, a thing that people look at and say, hey, look, Bob, it's the guy with the thing. Do we remember that? We were at the drive-in. And that's exactly, in my opinion, it's exactly like looking at uh, a Hot Wheels car. Look at that Hot Wheels. Remember that orange track? And you do the loop, the loop, and everything. It was the same, same experience. I was born, like, during the inception of pop art, mm -hmm. of really the, 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 triumph, the triumph of pop culture. When it just, it, when Andy Warhol, Roy Lichtenstein, these guys started paying attention to it and said, boy, it's all going to be images. It's all going to, and, and it just absolutely, uh, absolutely exploded beyond anyone's comprehension. And I experienced that. I experienced that in school. I experienced that in, in advertising. I experienced that in, in movies, television, these images, the colors, all of those things, the Campbell soup cans, the, 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 uh, the, the collages. So I've been a part of that. And then Back to the Future came out. And Back to the Future, I really think, was at another nexus because it was the beginning of cable television. It was the beginning of VHS tapes. Uh, and, and, and another, like, popular culture exploded, grew, 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 grew. Then mid-'80s, Back to the Future comes out at a time when imagery became everything. Everything that people were looking at had to do with a screen. And, and, and they're wa they were watching Back to the Future, un unlike even back then The Godfather, but they were watching Back to the Future on television over and over and over and over and over and over. So, again, back to my song, my postcard, like, how do you approach that? I, I'm just saying, and I'm not saying it in a bitter way, but I am saying that I can observe this, that I have been swallowed by, by you call it whatever you want, by popular culture, by a whale, by a monster, whatever. <laughs> some days it has sharp metal teeth. Some days it's like the Michelin man. You know, some days it's a big marshmallow guy. But it's – but I've been swallowed by a thing, you know. Yeah. And you can either be upset by that, 
drink about it, drug about it, break up your marriage and relationships about it, uh, and go around uh, in life as a bitter person saying, you think I'm that, but I'm this. Um, I don't really care what anybody thinks. I'll just comment on it in the way that I comment on it and keep on moving. I guess that's what I'm trying to get at, not to get too heady about art, but you, you buy a Jackson Pollock painting because of the emotion he was having when he made it, not because there's a bunch of spatters on a canvas. And the meaning behind some of this stuff really speaks to me. Um, okay. Well, getting back a little bit to acting, I just want to go through some of the other wonderful roles you've done. And I like to do this game called Role Association. So I'll name uh, a title of something you've worked on, and you can either say a little something about it or just say pass, whatever you want. Boy, I hope – if I say pass, it's probably because I I just remember nothing from it. That's fair. And that's what pass is there for. Because I – I mean, I've done a lot of stuff, yeah. not as like not as Tom Cruise, not as a big movie star, but just a lot of different work. Yeah. All right, let's start with Freaks and Geeks. Freaks and Geeks was a tremendous show that I was a part of. Um, Judd Apatow, Paul Feig, um, and a, and a cast that's full of gigantic movie stars now. Yeah, but Freaks and Geeks. Uh, again, like a breeding ground for major movie stars. A breeding yeah. ground for yeah. major movie stars. And uh, Freaks and Geeks, uh, well, it's, it's interesting in many ways, but Freaks and Geeks is a hit. May, maybe the first show that was a hit only as a DVD set. Yeah. Since when right. it was on TV, nobody watched it at all. Yeah. And speaking of Paul Feig, The Heat. Uh, the Heat. Yeah. Paul Paul directed The Heat. Very funny movie. I enjoyed it very much. Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy. Great ladies. Very nice. Everyone always like, what's that? What are they like? What are they like? And if if I don't like the person, I just generally don't talk about it. But but uh, Sandy and Melissa was fantastic. And Paul Paul is such a gentleman. You know, Paul is so intelligent, uh, so. Gentlemanly, literally, like he's often in fine suits, right? He's and almost always sometimes a walking in fine stick. suits. <laughs> yeah. fine. I saw Paul once at at Chicago Airport at O'Hare. I didn't know that he did it all the time. I knew that Paul liked to dress to the nines, uh-huh. and he has a beautiful wardrobe and suits and everything and overcoats. But I didn't know he did it all the time. So at O'Hare, I mean, there's a man who is decked out. <laughs> suit, you know, the pocket square, everything. Very expensive uh, overcoat. And I'm thinking, that looks exactly like Paul. Some, And I think it's a Chicago businessman who's going somewhere. <laughs> you know, so I'm sort of having my little donut walking closer and closer. And I'm going, oh, my gosh, that's Paul. Paul, Tom, you know, well, hello, Tom. So, so good to see you. You do it on airplanes? Uh, well, I like to look nice. Look, I think it's great. Again, it's the thing that we're talking about, about people following following the beat of their yeah. drummer. I was you know? once at an event with Paul F. Tompkins, and you know him and you know how he dresses. Yes. In fact, he was dressed even more to the nines. He was wearing a custom-made anchor suit based on the Jaws um, mayor. And he, we ran into Paul Feig, who was dressed as he does. Yes. And I immediately felt like a Dickens homeless person living under a bridge. I felt so underdressed and inadequate. Yes. But Paul uh, Paul is tremendous. And Paul is just very funny. Yeah. The informant. So, so many guys from stand-up are in the informant with Matt Damon, 
who was also a, a great guy. I mean, I loved because, I mean, when you're meeting Sandra Bullock on The Heat, Matt Damon and The Informant, and, you know, I've met plenty of big, huge stars like that, but you just have to you have to be gentle with them and just come in and see how they are. You know what I mean? You just have to see what energy the room with them has and whether whether they're a regular person or whether you have to talk to Rick, their handler, you know, before you say good morning. What, you know, one of those kind of deals. Yeah. And that's a relative rarity, but it actually happens. Uh-huh. There are plenty of of people that are just unusual and touchy and you're like, all right, whatever. I'll just, you know, I'll just go get my oatmeal and not say good morning or anything. Uh, but, but, but let me say, you know, like Matt Damon, t- totally great guy, totally great guy who just drives his car to, I mean, the car is really nice, <laughs> but he just drives his car and parks with everybody and says good morning to everybody, you know, and has a banana and then we start working. It's great. Sandra Bullock, same thing. Yeah. Melissa McCarthy, same thing. So it really was, uh, was a joy to work with them and to work with Steven Soderbergh, who, who st- I mean, you're in this big movie with Matt Damon. Steven Soderbergh is doing his own camera work. He's just got the small camera, the red camera, whatever he's, you know, and he's just, he's, he stands there and he says, okay, so this is the scene where you come into the office and everything. And it's just Steven standing there with a couple of camera assistants. And he says, uh, okay, give me the camera. They just put the camera on his shoulders uh, you know, and he's rolling and everything. Not a lot of yelling, not a lot of roll, stop, settle, people. He just puts it on there and he goes, okay. Uh, okay, we're going to end with a, just a few indulgences of mine, one of which is The Facts of Life, which I watched regularly as a kid. The Facts of Life. Now we're going back to really what's what, my heart, yeah. okay? <laughs> my heart that gives me little um, – The Facts of Life, yeah, I auditioned – for the facts of life as Moose. The guy just was named Moose. And he was a football player on, at, at the school that Joe and Blair and all the kids mm-hmm. from the facts of life uh, went to. And Moose wanted all of the money that they had collected to be used for a new scoreboard at the football stadium. So, um, so yeah, so I was in the facts of life with John Randolph old people. John Randolph was in the movie Serpico. You would recognize him uh, to see him. He, um, he was actually blacklisted in Hollywood. Uh, he was, uh, his name was brought up in the House Un-American Activities Committee. He had quite a, quite a historic, historic career. Oh, I know uh, exactly who career. this is. He's uh, Clark Griswold's father in Christmas Vacation. There you go. Yes. See? Yeah. So he was in the, in the episode of the facts of life <laughs> with me as sort of the president of the college or whatever. And he was in one scene and I was a kid playing moose, you know, the jock who gets in a fight with some guys at the end of the episode or something. And I'm just wondering like what John Randolph is a historic actor. I mean, he gave Frank Serpico his gold shield at the end of the movie. Um, and what, you know, what is he doing here with a bum like me? Fortunate. I mean, I would never ask a question like that, but some, <laughs> some actor with guts, you know, sort of like Mr. Randall, like, what can I ask? Why, you know, what are you doing on an episode of the facts of life? And he said, a patiently, patiently, but pointedly, I'm working. <laughs> you know, that's what I do. I'm an actor who works. 
this is my work this week. I'll have different work next week, I hope, or I'll audition for things because that's what actors yeah. do. And uh, it, it was the best lesson in being a working actor from a person like that to say that's, that's what we do. I, all of the thing, the, the, whatever Back to the Future became or The Heat or The Informant or Freaks and Geeks or any of that stuff, that's out of my hands. My job is to, uh, is to audition for it, get the job, and then come and do my very best. I think that's a lovely sentiment to end this interview on. Tom, thank you so much. Thanks for so much, man. That was a Thanks great for having me. Conversation. I appreciate it. Sure. My thanks once again to Tom Wilson for that conversation and also Ian James Corlett for making that whole thing happen. Thank you, Ian. Remember, you can catch a live I Was There Too on February 28th at 8 p.m. at The Regent in Los Angeles. I'll be talking to screenwriter Stephen D'Souza of Running Man and Die Hard fame, and there will be a screening of the ever-relevant Running Man that night as well. So please come out. Are you going to go to that, Margo? That's a yes. At this point, I speak fluent fat guy. Otherwise, you can find me on Twitter, at Matt Gourley, on Instagram, at Matt Gourley, on Letterboxd, at Matt Gourley. And if you can connect me with a guest, please email me at IWasThere2Pod at gmail.com. And as ever, you're invited to sit in on the interview if it's a success. Congratulations. Thanks for listening, everybody, and see you next time. Hey, this is Jason Sklar, one of the hosts of Sklarbro Country, a podcast here on Earwolf that we love doing. And we have a fantastic episode where we sit down with the hilarious Caitlin Olson. We talk to her about her comedic process. We talk to her about some inside the actor studio, behind the scenes. It's always sunny in Philadelphia stuff. Here's a clip. Dear, are your kids in karate? Ours are in jujitsu. Does Rob take the classes with your kids? He would love to. <laughs> he, would love to. He, he takes jujitsu, like adult jujitsu. <laughs> but like for the first four or five times, he brought his gi and everything in a bag. I'm like, what do you expect's going to happen in there? We had a blast. I think you'll enjoy it. And uh, you can check it out on earwolf.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. Sklarbro Country. Get into it. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.